Good day, everyone, and welcome to the channel. I am your host, Jeff Freeman, and welcome to JFree906. And today we have my special guest co-host, Gretchen Cornwall. And we are so very, very excited today to have with us the two wonderful authors uh, of many, many books, Clive Prince and Lynn Picknett. Welcome to the show today. Thank you for coming. Well, thank you for having us. It's brilliant to be here. Yes, it is wonderful. So, yes, thanks for the invite. Well, I tell you what, we are uh, in for a uh, quite a show today, folks, because, uh, as I mentioned, they are authors of several books, uh, the Templar Revelation, I think it was also the Zion Revelation, um, many others uh, about Mary Magdalene and going on. But also, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that uh, they were the inspiration for uh, Dan Brown's book and the movie The Da Vinci Code with Tom Hanks. Is that mm -hmm. correct? Yep, absolutely. It is, yes. Um, yeah, it, <laughs> these days it's kind of our main claim to fame. <laughs> you know, but it's, um, um, yeah, and depending what you think of the movie, of course, it's either yeah. it's all our fault or... <laughs> um, but, uh, but no, it's true. I mean, and just to explain why we say that, because obviously Dan Brown, when he wrote his his novel, The Da Vinci Code, mm -hmm. drew on a, a, you know, a number of sources, but... The thing that gave him the idea, um, as he acknowledged, um, was reading a copy of our book, The Temple Revelation, the first chapter of which is entitled The Secret Code of Leonardo da Vinci. Mm. <laughs> There's a bit of a clue there. Mm. Um, and it didn't take everything from from our book, um, you know, particularly went down the um, sacred bloodline route, um, which, which isn't something we do, but... He, he even got into that from reading about it in a, in our book. Mm. Um, so it kind of directed all his research. The way he actually put it was, I, I got everything I needed from the, the Templar Revelation. Yeah, he said that under oath in London's High Court. Yes, so it was true. It was true. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and, um, and 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 we actually ended up with a lot of cameos in the movie. As oh a yes, kind of yes, on the bus. Yes, I remember. Yeah. We never ever pass up an opportunity to remind <laughs> people about that. Yeah. I, I mean, you Absolutely. know, you would, you would, you know. So um, yeah, it was it was an extraordinary it was an extraordinary day. Um, it happened to be Clive's birthday, by the way. So you know, what, what oh, a great wow. wow, what um, a great present. Well, it was even better because I couldn't resist it. At the end of the day's filming, the whole day's filming for like 30 seconds on on screen, of course. But um, at the end of the day, I actually said to Tom, that is Tom Hanks, obviously, <laughs> um, our mate Tom. Um, I, I said, I said, by the way, it's Clive's birthday. Instantly, he got everybody to sing happy birthday to Clive. <laughs> oh, wow. So and Clive said to me, I can't ever have another birthday because you know, this <laughs> Well, he's managed a few since then. It was quite a surreal moment because they're all singing. I'm sitting there on the on a bus in London with Forrest Gump, Amelie, <laughs> and Richie out of Happy Days singing Happy Birthday. And I'm thinking, like, oh, that's awesome. When does the alarm go and I wake up? You know. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my goodness. That is awesome. And I did, you know, in the pre-show uh, little video that I had, the intro there, I did have a picture of you with Tom Hanks. Um, you know, and I, I got to tell you, honestly, um, what what I know that you have probably many, many uh, highlights of your careers over the years. Uh, that has to be one of them to be able oh, yeah. to be a part of yeah. that. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's the, that's the one we never shut up about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a, a whole lot of 
stories and anecdotes about that. Yeah. But yeah, it was, um, and you know, just from the professional point of view, um, our book Tempt Revelation had it came out in 1997. Mm-hmm. So this is actually the 25th anniversary year of that book coming out. It's been in print the whole time. Wow. Um, but of course, the connection with the movie, because you know, our book is actually mentioned in Dan Brown's novel. Mm-hmm. And of course, there was a lot of publicity going on around that time. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of kind of documentaries about fact behind the fiction that all that we got involved in. So, um, you know, kind of it renewed interest in the book and it boosted interest and, and sales. So it got it got our work out further. So, mm-hmm. you know, aside from the fun we had, um, just sort of making the movie and all that kind of thing, um, it, it was a, a good boost to us. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we were, we were basically, um, you know, we did a cameo, but outsiders might run away with the idea that we were merely extras. We weren't, of course, we were, we were guests. But um, but the thing is, a, a, a friend of ours who is a, a, a film producer said about me, not about Clive, but he said I was the worst extra in the world. Oh, <laughs> no. he, because oh. basically, basically, all I had to do was turn and look at Tom Hanks, and I couldn't even do that properly. And um, and well, he said, "This you guy spoke to the camera. You spoke to the camera. You kept looking at the end of the lens. That was really I know, funny." I but he, but our friend said he said um, you looked as if you were about to order another bottle of wine, and. <laughs> And I thought, well, I usually am. <laughs> but it was, I mean, it was really, I don't know what happened to me that day. It was obviously a form of nerves, but I was just kind of, oh, I can't act. I can't, oh, I can't do anything. I go, oh, dear. But, you know, but, but I mean, it, people might be wondering, um, you know, exactly what our attitude to, you know, the whole Dan Brown thing was, because obviously some authors were took against him and uh, sued him for plagiarism. That didn't work well for them. Um mm. But, um, I mean, our attitude was that basically our book was nonfiction. He was writing a novel. Mm-hmm. He was consulting our book like any other book of reference. And he gave us a credit within the pages of the Da Vinci Code itself. Yeah. So what, what is to hate? You know, what is right. to you know, cause a fuss about? So yeah. we were, I mean, the fact that we were basically on side got us the the cameo role in the in the movie basically yeah. Uh, when yeah. I first saw the film, I I I I thought, oh my God, that's Clive and Lynn, <laughs> and, yeah. and you know, and I just wait for it. I've seen it several times, but I just you know, I clock you each time, and, and uh, mm-hmm. uh, but it was just so fun at that juncture, and mm-hmm. I I I did feel badly for Vagent and Lee because I think it affected their health with the the, yes. the lawsuit. Yeah. And I'm glad that Henry Lincoln did not participate, but I was a bit nonplussed. And I, you know, I'm going to say this at some risk of of being uh, uh, shot at uh, (laughs) virtually, but I wished they hadn't sued him because Holy Blood, Holy Grail went back into publication because of that book, because of Dan Brown. Mm. And it it went back into publication. An author's dream. Mm. Was that is that true, Lynn? Or well, I'm just I'm just saying that the the we, we were at the uh, high court hearing every day. Um, oh my word! And wow. uh, the the judge from the very beginning 
couldn't understand why the case was there, why it was taken seriously. Um, and he basically said, you know, but you've made a fortune out of this. You know, how, how can you you know, bring yourself to do this? Um, and it was actually horrendous watching. Uh, it, it, Lee didn't turn up. He wasn't there. But Michael Bajant took the stand. Um, and they, it was like being watching somebody being flayed alive. I mean, oh, it was it was just horrendous. So oh, I'm yeah. sorry for that. Yeah, yeah. I I, I wish they had yeah. not made that step for their health's sake and their families. And and uh, uh, forgive me. Go ahead, Clive. I'm still grappling. You're losing it. Losing the the case costs them a lot of money. So it's expensive. Yeah. And we, we could never work out why you know um why they 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 took the case because i mean it never it never seemed to us for a moment that they had much of a case for plagiarism because it's research um but even if they even if they'd won on that on some copyright thing the next stage in any one of these kind of cases is to say okay the you know the guy stole your work how much money have you lost as a result of that? Hmm. And you think their answer would be, well, our sales went up tenfold yeah. or something. <laughs> it's like, so th there was no, um, you know, th they wouldn't have made anything out of it anyway, because right. normally you say someone stole my work, so um, people didn't buy my book, so we've lost sales, so we need compensation. But in their case, it, it went the other way. You know, they, exactly. they made a lot more money out of it. Mm. So it, it never made sense to us from the beginning um, mm -hmm. what it was all about. And we weren't surprised that that they lost the case um, mm. at all. Mm -hmm. um, well, that's something that you were there every day. And uh, I hadn't intended to bring up the subject, but I suppose I was just dying to ask you or to, to you know, interject. But um, it, it's... Uh, you brought so much to the table and your, your, uh, you know, the Templar revelation certainly deserved to be in print for 25 years. And that's a rarity in itself uh, to, to be constantly in, you know, out there and available for people to, to buy. Uh, it's, it is quite the book stop uh, or doorstop or um, you could, you could, a, you could throw it at a burglar's head. And, and, uh, Yep. Uh, but it's truly yeah. phenomenal. It is phenomenal. The yeah. scholarship, the scholarship is is astronomical. Yeah, I wanted to say too that uh, I went out and I bought the uh, audiobook, and thank goodness it was in audiobook. And I'm and I'm kind of venturing into the voiceover world myself uh, to be able to do audiobooks and things down the road. But um, first of all, the guy that you that was picked to do it, wonderful. The man is absolutely wonderful um, at doing the voiceover. But I tell you, going through this, it was, I, I had to take notes. I mean, I was writing, sitting down and taking notes, but the information that is in the, the Templar Revelation is, I mean, there's so much in there. And it, it, I, I, from the very beginning, uh, it just goes and goes and goes and goes and goes. And I, and I thought, oh my goodness, how can we even, if we, even if we just talked about this book only, it would take us an eight-hour show. I mean, there was so much information, but it's really wonderful, and I suggest that anybody um, that wishes to uh, uh, to get out there and get this book. It is really good, um, and I haven't gone into the other ones yet, but I will. 
um, as we go along. But I also wanted to just say, too, that I know that you guys have your own website and a Patreon channel that we do have linked in the description of the show here today. If you want to talk about that just a moment before we dig into the uh, the, 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 the whole part of what you wanted to speak about today, if you wanted to speak on that, go ahead for just a moment, if you would. Uh, yeah. I mean, <clears throat> we, yeah, our website is, well, you've got the links there, but it, it picnicprints.com, mm -hmm. um, you know, um, where we put news uh, uh, um, and, um, you know, updates of what we're doing. Um, our Patreon channel, you know, we use that to, to really do updates um, to, uh, to our books, you know, because, you know, Temple Revelation has been out 25 years. Mm -hmm. uh, as you say, it covers a, a lot of ground, a lot of subjects. We've continued to research them and we keep finding you know, new things that, mm -hmm. you know, we think, oh, we wish we'd put that in the book if we'd have known it at the time. Or, you know, it, it corrects things as well, you know, because we, we find out new information that means we didn't get something entirely right and sometimes completely wrong. <laughs> um, nothing major, fortunately. Um, so we use the, 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 the Patreon uh, account as a, a way of getting research, new bits of research updates, um, new thoughts, Mm -hmm. out there so um so yes anyone who would like to subscribe to that but also we do. i mean at the moment we're in the middle of a series about the origins of the big conspiracy theories we're talking about the real illuminati at the moment on that our joint patreon uh, channel mm -hmm. but i have my own um patreon page okay. which is basically um two long installments a month um, of of my memoirs, of, of my story, which actually surprises surprised me that it's relatively interesting. Um, and I mean, it's about me growing up in a haunted house and um, oh, all sorts okay. of other stuff, yeah, all sorts of really weird stuff. And also, you know, meeting Clive and the books and the background to and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I apologize. Uh, all I'm hearing is is a terrible feedback static. Oh, really? I, I can only understand like maybe one word in 10 um jeff how how should we proceed because if i i can't hear properly okay um you're coming I can't through hear okay. You either. okay let me uh, i'll send you a message here real quick and uh let's see i can switch to my uh my uh uh webcam and try with with i don't know if it's my phone or if it's the uh, I just would like to be able to hear and participate. Um, let's see. I, okay, I just sent you a message. I don't know. You're, you're probably not hearing very well. Um, maybe try to switch. Uh, but you're coming through here just fine. I don't know if you're hearing this or not. So Suddenly it's better. I do apologize. Okay. Uh, I do apologize. Um, no problem. Uh, it seems to have cleared up. Okay. Uh, but I couldn't understand anything Lynn said, unfortunately. Um I haven't had this happen before, so I do apologize. Um, uh, if this holds, if you trust, if you trust it, I'll just stick with what's happening now. Yes. I can Let's hear you. Okay, okay so if it, if it goes south on me, I'll simply drop out and then switch to my desktop. Okay, Sounds But good. I have a question uh, for you, um, Lynn. Uh, on Patreon, you do have to sign up to Patreon. You have yes. to open up an account. What's your lowest level? to be a patron, to be your 
to be both of your patrons, uh, Clive and Lynn? A dollar, three dollars, five dollars? What will it? It's 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 three pounds British, which um, it's bit bit under three dollars. Four dollars. So I, yeah, well, three or four dollars then. We always put it, 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 it's the the price of a cup of coffee a month, right? Okay, just so everybody knows that. And, um, if if you said that already, I apologize, but uh, uh, yeah, so it's it's worth signing up for the process of uh, becoming a patron, uh, email address, password, and, and away you go, and then you can have a virtual cup of coffee with Clive <laughs> and Liz. Yeah, well worth it. A price of a beer, you know. <laughs> a micro brew, yes, a, 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 a very refined vintage too. <laughs> so yeah, as we said, and Linda is also Linda and Jan. They are the um, admins of our Facebook group, and Lynn, uh, Linda is going to put up the links there as well for all of your. You guys had emailed that to me, so I put it in the description of the show today here on YouTube. And it will also be linked on our Facebook page as well. So fantastic stuff. And that newsletter uh, of your memoirs, that's going to be interesting. I And you mentioned a haunted house. Uh, I know I, I kind of briefly brought it up in the pre-show meeting, uh, mm-hmm. talking about uh, John Edwards and I have a, a channel uh, called Beyond Our World. Mm-hmm. We have to have you on that show. So mm-hmm. you are going to, I'm going to be, I'm going oh, to believe me, you do have to have us on your yeah. show. Oh, <laughs> oh, this is yeah. going to be well, I mean, awful, we've, had, we've had an awful lot of weird stuff happen to us over the years. It, it's kind of strange because um, we actually met through an interest in the paranormal. Ah, well, I was going to ask. That was where I was going next. So please proceed. Oh, yeah. Well, it was actually it was a um, a lecture in in someone's house. Um, um, nineteen eighty nine. In nineteen eighty nine. Yes. Um, but you know, Lynn um, was already a writer on the paranormal, specialising in that and and doing doing lots of radio. Um, I at that point was just someone that read about it. Um, but the, the the strange thing is that as that was kind of our research interest and our background, um, when we write together, strange enough, we haven't written very much about the paranormal. It mm. tends to be like the historical mysteries. Um, right. mm-hmm. um, so uh, it, it's kind of odd that we came from that place. But although you know, Lynn's written separately about the paranormal, but mm. when we write together, it tends not mm. to be about that. Mm. So sometimes people think we may be a bit sceptical about such things. We're really not. Really not. I mean, no. No. we believe some really weird stuff. Yeah. We can yeah. outweird most people. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, the, the stuff that went on in a tiny, tiny little house up in Yorkshire where I grew up, I mean, you know, and uh, uh, real. And, and actually, um, uh, one of the, the experts around at the moment um, into weird things in London, um, she, uh, you know, I was telling her my story and, and she read some of my Patreon stuff. And she, um, she said, actually, this is one of the most sustained and terrifying hauntings she's ever heard of. And the really? thing is, it had never occurred to me. I'm allegedly an expert on the paranormal, but because I was so close to it I thought oh it's just what happened to me you know kind of thing and I didn't see it in context of comparing it to other hauntings but actually I I take her point it was very sustained and it was utterly terrifying so yes wow Mm. wow I I can't wait to hear more about that in the Mm. future I mean we could I'm almost tempted to just say let's go for it right here (laughs) 
<laughs> oh boy, that's going to be interesting. John, I see John Edwards is in the chat right now. He is my, uh, he, he and I kind of both uh, share hosting uh, that show uh, through the mutual uh, concept of it, of Beyond Our World. And it's everything that it is beyond our world, paranormal, UFO, UAPs, all that kind of stuff. And he's already saying sold, he wants you on. So, <laughs> Uh, so, John, uh, Edwards is a, John Edwards is a paranormal magnet, so okay, you exactly. have something to comment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. He's got some good stories yeah. of his own. So, oh, all right, with that said, and I, I'd, I would love to keep going with that, but mm -hmm. let me let me just start off by asking, and again, I'm going to kind of let uh, Gretchen take over here after I ask this initial question. Uh, I'm going to kind of take a back seat here and let you guys go. Uh, but what what's, let me kind of go back to the beginning of where you got started with an interest in all of the information you've looked for for Templar Revelation and the Templars themselves. What got you started in this? Where What piqued your interest? It's, um, it, that kind of began, we began with Leonardo da Vinci. Um, we got interested in him. The, the first book we did together was actually about the Shroud of Turin in which we argued that actually the Shroud of Turin with its miraculous image of Jesus on it um, was actually faked by Leonardo da Vinci. Um, so that's where we started. It, just kind of looking at that, that one subject and we got, we got into that and eventually a book came out of that, okay. um, which we can talk more about um, you know, if you want to there. But then Absolutely. it was looking at... Um, we got interested in Leonardo and we got interested in what he believed because most people assume that, you know, he was like the first scientist. Therefore he must have not been religious. He must have not been spiritual. Um, and, uh, you know, he must have been an atheist because scientists always are kind of thing. Um, and we found out what that wasn't the case at all. So we actually got into his beliefs, which we actually found he was, he was a heretic. And we started, uh, this came about from actually looking at his paintings and the codes that he put into his paintings. Um, and again, we can, we can go into that. We can actually look at some examples of that as we go on, but just to very quickly get into like how the whole process happened, because this was all new to us. You know, we didn't, we, we hadn't really done history before. Um, so we, we, we got interested in the codes in Leonardo's paintings and we really quickly honed into the fact he's, he had some strange thing about John the Baptist. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems so, yeah. Uh, yeah, um, and once we put that together, uh, our thought then was, okay, Leonardo had this thing about John the Baptist who obviously sort of seemed to reckon uh, as, as greater than Jesus, you know. Um, and but okay we think maybe it was just some eccentric idea of his mm -hmm. so the next question was um could we find anyone before his time and since his time who had these same ideas and that's where the book temporal revelation came from because we had all looking back in history and finding out yes there was this whole chain of um groups and individuals and sects and things that all believed seem to share the same belief in the 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 importance of John the Baptist to the point he's more important than Jesus, and that's where we got into it. That one of those groups being the Templars. Mm -hmm. um, 
so hence the name of the book. But that... um, you didn't just jump into this. I mean, both of you, if I'm if I understand correctly, have a journalistic background. Is that I correct? do. I do. That okay. So so you were prepared and understood the capacity, the necessity to be able to really slice and dice information is what I'm trying to express. You didn't just decide, oh, I'm going to write a book about this, and it happened. It, do it doesn't just happen. No, um, no, no. I wish it did. I wish it did. Indeed. Yeah. Indeed. But, th but then everybody would, and you are traditionally published as well. Um, uh, but I just wanted to let everybody know that so that they, they have an uh, understanding and appreciation of your background. So you were you were actually prepared to do this. You didn't just wake up and decide to. No, I mean, you know, as Clive said, it, it, the, the roots of the Templar Revelation went back to our Shroud of Turin book, which is called The Turin Shroud, strangely. Right. Um, the Turin Shroud, How Leonardo da Vinci Fooled History, bit of a giveaway. Um, but, uh, yeah, and we had all this stuff left over, which didn't, about Leonardo, about Johannitism, which is the belief in John the Baptist being superior to Jesus. Um, and um, we just, you know, it was, it was, didn't really, it didn't fit in the Shroud book, but we thought, well, wait a minute, there's another book here, you know, um, and it involved quite, a, well, as you say, quite a lot of research. We had, as I say, quite a lot of research left over from the Shroud book, but we obviously had to add to it. Um, I mean, it's a huge subject. And in fact, we have returned to it in later books, the sequel, if you like, to Templar Revelation, is our 2008 book called The Masks of Christ. Oh, I'm um, going to write that down. Um, which, uh, you know, brings our research up to date. Um, I should actually point out that Clive particularly is the best researcher in the world because I'm going to make him blush. No, be no, because he's, he's, he's Mr. Lateral Thinking. I mean, you know, he'll, he'll look at a fact and he's very big on facts and evidence. Everything has to be evidence led. But you look at a fact and say, wait a minute, that reminds me of something I saw in a book, you know, three years ago, not a book about this, but about, you know, and and then he put it all together, you know, the jigsaw makes a picture. So hurrah for Mr. Clive. <laughs> a gift. Uh, uh, very gifted. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Wonderful. Clive, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I, you know, for, for those of you, you out there, uh, Jeff has such a, a variety of people that have been drawn in by Oak Island into this group and to talk about all the the, the subjects that spin off from that. Uh, I just wanted them to know a little bit more about both of you as well in case they weren't familiar. And um, uh, I, I was quite taken with your research on the Shroud of Turin and there is a Templar connection there. There was a Templar family that owned uh, what what was heralded as the sh the shroud of Turin, and then it disappeared for three hundred years and resurfaced with Leonardo, or uh, um, around Leonardo's time. Was it De Chalon something? The family name? I can't. I'm struggling to The Tishane family, um, Thank you. Um, who were sort of minor French nobility, because um, you know the thing people always say with our uh, immediately with with our book, our conclusion that Leonardo faked the German Shroud, is saying, hang on, but the German Shroud was around 100 years before Leonardo da Vinci was even born. It was being displayed in this small place in France. Um, so, you know, how can Leonardo have done that? 
Uh, And obviously that's one of the first things that we thought when we got into Uh this. Um, But when we looked into it, we found that that shroud that was being displayed, um, there were no pictures of that shroud. There's only descriptions of it. Uh And basically everyone that said it looked at at that point said it's a painting. I mean, the local bishop said it's a painting. Uh, He even said he knew who'd painted it. And the thing about the image on the Turin Shroud, the one thing it's, it's not is a painting. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, and then that shroud was acquired, um, you know, it was obviously a, a big holy relic that was drawing people in and, and drawing their money in. Um, but it's, a, it's been in a, a very minor family. It was then acquired by a much bigger family, the Savoy family. Um, and then it kind of disappears. It wasn't for as long as you said, it was for 30 or 40 years. Um, <laughs> then it reappears during Leonardo's lifetime, mm-hmm. or it is put back on display. A shroud, that is. This A shroud, shroud yeah. yes. it, It's, supposed, right. to, it's mm-hmm. supposed to be the same one, but everyone's reaction now is completely different. You know, whereas the, the first one, everyone said it's a painting, and the Pope said it's not the real thing. Um, then when it suddenly reappears, everyone's saying, this is amazing. We don't know how this image got there. It must be a miracle. Mm-hmm. The Pope then says, no, it's the real thing. And he you know, he says it can have its own special chapel and that. And we just think, yeah. And it's only from then that we can be sure that the shroud that's around today is the same one that was around then because people actually made copies of it. So you can tell that's the same thing, whereas the old one. So we think... Yes, there was somebody did a kind of painted one, a painted relic. Um, and then people said, mm, that's not going to convince everybody. Let's get a better one. Let's get somebody better to do one that can do something. Let's that's think, miraculous. who could do that? Mm. <laughs> yeah. And the first time, we think the first time it reappeared and put back on display was in 1494 in a town in Italy called Vercelli, which is very close to Milan, which is where Leonardo da Vinci was working at that time. You know. Mm-hmm. So, uh, uh, but sorry, go back to you. the reason I went down that route, is that there's probably something more to it than that, because this family that, um, that the trial first appears in is about 1350, 1360, the Dishane family, one of the Deshane family, the, the ancestors, just not that long before, had been one of the leaders of the Knights Templar at the time the Templars were suppressed. Um, now, this sparked a whole theory of, well, maybe the Templars had had the, you know, the genuine shroud of Christ um, and somehow it had passed through into this family. And for various reasons we found that didn't really work. But it's just, it does seem a hell of a coincidence that um, a family associated with one of the Templar leaders in France, you know, one of the, the, the final leaders who was, you know, uh, executed at the time of the suppression, um, that it should be his family that, you know, 40 or 50 years later, this story begins with. It's almost as if this this group are trying to, uh, create this hoax for a particular reason, mm-hmm. and then when that didn't work, they get a better one made. You know, mm-hmm. for a better mm-hmm. one for an age when people are 
getting a bit more skeptical about relics, mm -hmm. something that they can pass off as a, a, an authentic miracle. So th there's there's a Templar connection, um, as there is you know a lot of these um, avenues kind of draw into the Knights Templar, and they met well as all the avenues do, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so it's there is a Templar connection there, but that doesn't mean the shroud is authentic, you know. Right. I did appreciate the documentary on the tour and when it was shroud when it was tested, mm -hmm. and your theory as to what was behind the shroud. And I, I, I'm just going to give a, a quick disclaimer here. There are a lot of people of faith that follow Oak Island and are probably present today. Um, uh, the authenticity of the shroud should be considered history and not proof or disproof of a great divine. So I just wanted to put that out there uh, if anybody's wrestling that with, with that today. But uh, it was fascinating what the two of you came up with as to how Leonardo may have created this phenomenal object of art, of sacred value, of uh, and of course, he being one of the greatest scientists, a father of science and art, uh, he, it is an important object of history. Oh yeah! Wow. Yeah. Um, yeah. And for myself, it was a revelation to to me, and no pun intended, uh, that that early photography was or photography was being practiced at that time. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yes, the, the argument we, we put forward in the book is, you know, people say the shroud is a, a miraculous image because, um, you know, the, the most famous thing about it is you can only see the image properly when you look at it in neg photographic negative. And that it behaves like a photograph, but mm -hmm. it's been around for so long it can't possibly be. Um, but we actually found, yes, that is how the image got there. It is actually a photograph by Leonardo da Vinci, Actually, it's even better than that. Go on, you say it. Yeah. It's not, ah, thank you. <laughs> it's it's not um, just a 500-year-old photograph um, by Leonardo da Vinci. In part, it's a 500-year-old photograph of Leonardo da Vinci because the image of the shroud, which is of a crucified man, the front and the back, was basically made in three stages. Um, the front from the neck down and then all of the back but the face is leonardo's it's certainly of an older person that you would think i mean jesus was supposed mm -hmm. to be what 33 ish mm -hmm. years old mm -hmm. yeah. and the face looks like a much much older person yeah well not much older yeah. no no but I, no i wouldn't i wouldn't necessarily agree with that but um but it's i mean there, there, there are there are things that you can see just going back a bit to it being a fake. The things you can actually see from the image, you don't have to you know, have a background in you know, great research or anything. If you look at it with completely new eyes, there's dead giveaways. For example, the face at the front is at a different angle from the head at the back. The chin is level and at the back, the head is tilted slightly. Um, you know, there's all, sorts of, there's all sorts of things. There's a line here at the bottom of the neck which effectively makes the man look beheaded. Now, 
was Leonardo, I mean, there's, there's a limit to the amount of symbolism you can imbue, a, you know, the image of a crucified man with, but, you know, pre being presented with the opportunity to do this uh, in his own way, was he actually saying, because he could have got rid of that line, you know, I mean, he, but he's, it's there subliminally telling us that one who was beheaded, like John the Baptist, is over one who was crucified. It's a Johannite statement, as he would say, with, for those with eyes to see. Um, I mean, that's speculation on our part, but it's, I think it's a valid speculation because, as I say, the, the, the line is there and Leonardo was a genius. If, you know, if he wanted to get rid of it, he could have done. But there well, it is. It was interesting for me watching that documentary. This is a while back. I don't remember the name of it for those who are curious about it. I, I'm sorry, I don't. But what the, one of the scientists was saying was that if you were to take a cloth and put it over somebody's face and then you know, bring it back out, it would be so distorted looking, yeah. you know, it, it, it wouldn't look like yeah. the yeah. product. Yeah. It would be yeah. this, and they actually recreated that for, for us. Yeah. And it was this weird, you know, almost alien looking yeah. It is. And it, it's, it's one of the things that when we first got into this, um, one of the first realizations for us that however the image got there, it had to have the cloth had to have been flat at the time so it didn't wrap a body now once you've got that then you're thinking well it's well it, i say a fake it you know, a work of human ingenuity yeah. um because then you still yeah. have to say well how did the image get there mm. um which um you know i mean we had to look and say could it possibly be done using materials and technology that were available in Leonardo's day. And we found, yes, it could. Yep. Um, they, he had basically a camera, I think called a camera obscure, that he's known to have worked with. Mm -hmm. um, he experimented hugely with optics. He was, tr he was trying to capture an image from life. Um, and yes, we found the materials to do it. And in the end, we... Um, we made our own, you know. We, we to, you know, the only way to prove that you could do it using materials and technology around in this day is to actually um, uh, to do it, mm. which is what we did. This is back in 1994 that our mm. first mm. book came out. Yeah, we we, we did oh, it again. Me. We did it again for our first documentary, which was made for the BBC. It was made by uh, Sir David Frost company david frost of Fro frost nixon fame um he um he had a television company and um he, I, I very briefly worked for them and and i was telling them about our shroud research and they said brilliant let's do it mm -hmm. so they took us to vinci and they took us to you know well to italy basically to tuscany and we did we did another replication um you know, sitting there in the hot sun, it was brilliant. Um, uh, for this documentary, that was our first documentary. We've done loads since then, including one by the National Geographic. Um, but the interesting thing was that when in 1995, for the first documentary, the David Frost one, you know, obviously they wanted to get other people, art historians, artists, you know, academics, to, to agree with us or to say it was possible what we were suggesting. And they couldn't find anybody really. Uh, that was 1995. Fast forward to the early date of 2001, um, and National Geographic found loads of people who would agree with us. You know, it's, 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 it's in the air, you know, in all that time, you know. Yes. 
No one wants to be the first one to step out right. on something that could be very uh, controversial. Yeah, it was. Uh, we were the first people, and, and believe me, it was. Yes. <laughs> we continue well, to find evidence because that, that book's been through two revisions where we've found new evidence and added it. And then, um, you know, we still keep finding new evidence right up until this day. So, not just evidence for Leonardo's involvement, because I was saying that. Being him, the great joker, you know, he's not just this genius, um, but, you know, a thing, actually, I think, I think a lot of things people now appreciate is that he was actually a great joker. And um, he used to have fun with his audience in his paintings, you know, with uh, uh, things, and the fact that he used his own face for the face of Christ on the shroud. And that's something, you know, you, you compare the images with the surviving images of Jesus, you know, you can see it's the same man. Um, and in fact... Same in images of Leonardo. Images of Leonardo, sorry, yeah. yeah. Um, and, I mean, one of the best moments we had was when we were doing this uh, documentary for National Geographic in, in said, 2001. And as, as part of that, that also interviewed some people that believe the shroud is authentic, you know, as they should for, for, for the balance. Mm -hmm. And there was a, an Italian artist mm -hmm. uh, called Luigi Mattai who makes life-sized uh, sculptures of Jesus for, for churches and cathedrals based on the man on the shroud. Um, so he's obviously studied that image really, really closely to reproduce these Things and they went to film him actually making one of his images. Um, they didn't actually tell him what the show was about. They just said it's about the Turin Shroud. They didn't say it was about you know our work particularly. So they just filmed him, um, and he's on camera saying you know he's he's saying how he actually goes about making this um, the images, and then he just says you know one thing that's always. Um, uh, you know, interested me or, or surprised me is how much like Leonardo da Vinci our Lord looked, you know. Mm, <laughs> and it's like, my word. Show, you know, they, mm. they, found, they didn't know what they were, I mean, if they'd have known he was talking about, the show was about our work, he probably wouldn't have said no, that. He's very Caucasian. He's European <laughs> in his facial features. And it's, an, it's a marvelous image, you know, it's a very... Yeah, yeah. Handsome, beautiful. 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 Uh, yeah. Absolutely, Leonardo was beautiful. You see, Leonardo was beautiful. And yeah. Just backtracking a bit, bit on what Clive said. Um, the interesting thing is, that, you know, because people at school, including me, way back, obviously. Um, but you know, we were told that Leonardo was this this great genius, and we thought, yawn, you know, and what what do we care, you know? Um, but actually, you know. Art historians, art, and to some extent artists, have recreated him in their own image. But basically, Leonardo did not like academics. Um, he would often sneered at them in his writings, saying, you know, they stick their noses in books when they should be out learning from nature. Mm. Um, and, um, I mean, it's possible that he was bitter because he wasn't allowed to go to university because he, he was illegitimate and he couldn't. Um, right. you know, those were the rules in those days. But um, but even so, he really hated academics. Um, so, you know, that's that's one thing. But the other thing is that he was, you know, as Clive said, he was well known as, as, as a joker. But he was he was he was more than that. He was actually a very accomplished conjurer and illusionist. 
Um, mm. And he, you know, he used to, you can imagine he was great at parties, you know, pulling golden balls out of people's ears and, and he built robots that walked and did things and they were just amazing, you know. And he, he, he was behind the special effects for the, for the shows that they put on at courts. And so this is the mindset of the man who created Turing Shroud. So he had the mindset, you know, he had the ingenuity um, and he had the, he had the face for it. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. And tall for his time, six foot. Yeah, it was um, six foot. Yeah. And oh, yeah, that's something else about the shroud, actually. Um, that, uh, I mean, th this is a fact, by the way. We checked this um, in, in quite interesting ways. But the, the Turin shroud is six foot eight at the front and six foot ten at the back. Um, <coughs> and, um, it, you know, and. and it, it, I mean, there's no doubt about this. We, we've, we've double checked it. And actually, um, on one occasion, it's a bit of a complicated story, but I was curator for the National Media Museum's exhibition called The Unexplained. And, and the shroud was the centerpiece. Well, it was actually a, the photographic, um, what do I mean? Not, transparency. Transparency, mm. yes, photographic transparency, the, the full length thing. So it's like seeing the shroud. It was on a special light box. So you could look behind it. And so it was amazing. Um, but yeah, so, and it was in a special room. And I, you know, I, I, there were visitors coming around and I just sort of went and talked to them about it. And, and every single one of them said, he's very tall, isn't he? You know, mm. he's really tall. And while it was there, Clive, who was exactly and very handily six foot tall himself, you know, lay down by the side of the image. And we got people from the, from the museum to help us do this. And basically, there's no doubt, the man is six foot eight and six foot 10. No, you know, so and, and the reason for that is that it's a projected image or, or two projected images front and back, and which can be any height from that to, you know. Um, and again, though, it's Leonardo being very clever, subliminally, psychologically, mm -hmm. you know, you, you get disturbed by the image. You know, mm. you get you get disturbed by by the strange, beautiful face and the, you know, the neck and the extraordinary height of the man. Yeah. But it's subliminal, you know, it works away at you. It's a bit like his very disturbing, you know, John, his John the Baptist, you know, it's, it's it, the, the face is, is beautiful, but it's kind of leering at you. It's yeah. a really odd look, you know. They are odd. They, they look, the, the, his imagery of John the Baptist looks as if the, the, this image is trying to portray, withhold something. I know something you don't know. Yeah, yeah, uh, expression yeah. Yeah. and yeah. a bit malevolent, you know, a bit, yeah, yeah, a bit, yeah, disturbing is a good, a good yeah. word. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I don't, I don't know if it, is it possible, for Jeff, to put that picture up? Please? Mm -hmm. Is that um, yeah. Saint John the Baptist one? Is that That's this one here? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, that is a, a very disturbing and curious. It's a typical Da Vinci. Um, you know that it's not a cuddly saint. You know it's not a, a an austere, beautiful saint. This is, as you say, it's some somebody with some. It's almost like a blackmailer's expression, isn't it? You know, he kind of. I know something about you. Yeah, I've got you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, and that uh, finger pointing gesture. Um, <clears throat> this was one of the key things for us when we started to. Um, you know, first of all, we were just looking at could Leonardo have done the shroud <coughs> excuse me and if so how could he have done it and then we kind of got onto well why did he do it and the obvious reason is just for the money um uh, you know he was paid to do it 
But then we kind of got drawn a bit more into that, um, to say the codes he put in his painting. And a key one for us is this finger pointing, which here, you know, John the Baptist is doing it. But then we realized that Leonardo had this kind of obsession with John the Baptist. So, um, <clears throat> you know, whenever he was commissioned to do a religious painting, he would put John the Baptist in if he could. But if he couldn't, you know, if the subject of the painting was such that <clears throat> there was no way you could put John in there, he would use this gesture as a kind of reference to it, <clears throat> to John. So it's like whenever he could, he always gets this reference in. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, but uh, so so that was a key moment. Yeah, that's a key symbol for us. I'm also thinking while we're looking at pictures and as Lynn was talking about um, you know, Leonardo as the, the, the Joker, um, I wonder if it's time to look at another one. Do you think? Yeah, be before we go there real quick, I wanted to point out that uh, one of our uh, viewers, uh, Judy uh, Rudabush, has also pointed out in this picture, picture uh, the two fingers to the chest <laughs> that she noticed that, uh, you know, he's like, tapping on his chest there with the two fingers. I, I didn't know if that, you know, and, and as you have said before, I've heard you say in some of the other, um, you know, shows you've been on, Leonardo didn't do anything by mistake. He meant every piece of what he painted into these. So I wondered about that. Had you noticed that before the, well, I'm sure you have, but. Uh, yes. Although we don't, haven't actually made that much of it, but basically, you know, the, the, <clears throat> the simple, the painting is conventionally explained by um, uh, you know, John being the, the, the forerunner, the, the herald mm -hmm. of, of Jesus Christ. Um, so he's kind of pointing up and, and saying, you know, pointing the way to God kind of thing. Um, but those fingers are actually, no, you actually look at the message. Yes, he, he, he may be pointing up to, to heaven and to God and divinity, mm -hmm. but those ones are saying, it's me, it's me, it's me. It's me. Yeah. Yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah. It's all about me. Yeah. And that's this thing that came that we, we kept finding mm -hmm. in the Leonardo works is that he's always positioning John the Baptist as being the more important one. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. He does all his paintings of Jesus, but he'll always have an element of John's symbolism mm -hmm. that that actually makes him makes him more important. Mm -hmm. I mean another key well the key image for us, another one was the um the Virgin of the Rocks, the um, you know, the big oh, one. Which, yeah, I've got that one here. There was something we, when we actually wrote the book, there's something we entirely missed, but we've since yeah. corrected. Yeah, most people entirely <clears throat> miss it. Um, but yeah, um, yeah, if we do, it's the, 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 there's two versions of the painting there's one in London, and there's you one, sent in, one didn't you? you sent, the, yeah. yeah, yeah, you sent, and yeah. there's one that's in Paris in the mm. Louvre, which mm. the Paris one is the more important. That's it, that's, that's it. it, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, should I do the um. The John symbolism. Yeah, you do the John symbol, and I'll do the yeah. other. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just, just very roughly, you know, another key one for this. This is um, Virgin of the Rocks. <clears throat> it's a painting, uh, supposedly showing. There was a, there was a legend because a lot of people have the problem when they read the Gospels of saying, "Why does Jesus? You know, Jesus' kind of mission starts with him being baptized by John the Baptist, according to the Gospel stories." <clears throat> And there's an obvious kind of question there of well, why would a sinless Jesus need to be baptized anyway? And also, you know, the person doing the baptism, um, 
at least at that moment, is in the superior position. They're bestowing um, a sacrament in the same way that, you know, when, when a priest baptizes a child, um, you know, they're kind of bestowing something. So they're in the superior position. Um, <clears throat> so to overcome that, there was this uh, legend created in the early days of the church that what actually happened was during the flight into Egypt, um, you know, Mary and Joseph took took Jesus into you know, off into Egypt. During that point, they actually met up the, with with the infant John the Baptist, and <clears throat> um, at that point, infant Jesus um, blessed um, baby John, and therefore kind of gave him the authority to baptize him later in life. Mm. It, this isn't a gospel story, but it's something to overcome that you know, kind of logical problem people had with it. And that's what Leonardo was um, commissioned to paint specifically you know, for in this um, painting for a chapel. Um, but as usual, he have, had a bit of fun with it. Um, and what we see in the painting is you've got the Virgin Mary with apparently with baby Jesus. Um, the angel that's looking out at us is the angel Uriel, which was the traditional protector of, of John the Baptist when he was in the desert. So you've got, um, you know, apparently baby Jesus um, with his hand up, blessing and kneeling baby John. So this moment of conferring the authority to baptize him later in life. Um, <clears throat> but then you think, hang on, um, the babies are with the wrong protectors. The baby John the Baptist is with Mary, and the 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 you know the baby Jesus is with John's traditional protector. They seem to have got the identities the wrong way round. And we actually, well, supposing you have the correct identity, or you know the obvious way round, you've actually got the reverse of the story that it's Jesus that's kneeling in submission to the blessing of John. And there are a couple of other little clues in there that that's what is intended. Uh, for example, you know, the, the 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 baby with the angel is putting their hand into a pool of water. You know, obviously, John the Baptist baptized through water. You've also got this strange um, uh, positioning of hands of the of, of the Virgin and the angel that art historians have drawn attention to and saying, well, what, what's this kind of claw-like gesture? Yeah. And when we were looking at it, we were realizing, mm, there's, we don't know, the babies look identical, as if there's deliberate confusion or identity. And we thought, there's no actual label on there to say which baby's which. And we thought, actually, there kind of is. Because if you look at those that arrangement of hands, as if there's an invisible object there, between the hands. Between the hands. Yeah. You've got one that's on top of something <clears throat> and a finger cutting across like this. What image, What would go in there? Then you think a severed head. Mm. Mm. And that's above the baby that most people take to be Jesus. We think that's a sign. That's John doing yeah. the blessing. Yeah. So that was a, an important um, mm. part of decoding for us, along with other paintings. So we put that in the book. Mm. Um and you know, following all that logic, there was something we entirely missed until Lynn spotted it a few years yes. later. And it doesn't actually, I suppose, say much for me that I was, as far as I know, the first person in 500 years to notice this. Um, but anyway, I did. 
Um, and once you see this, you can never unsee it. Um, right, well, a bit of background. Leonardo was uh, commissioned to paint this by a bunch of monks called the Confraternity of the Immaculate Conception, which might have given him an idea. Um, and basically, as Clive said, the only thing that, I mean, basically they, they had a frame that they wanted using and they just wanted him to depict this scene. Um, that was all they said to him. So he had free reign apart from that. So the rocks of Madonna of the Rocks or Virgin of the Rocks were completely his idea. And didn't he use them? Talking about being disturbing. Okay. Now, now, forget everything you've, you've ever known about this painting. Forget even it's supposed to be a religious painting. The biggest thing in the painting is made of rocks. So look at the Virgin's head and look at what's just behind her head and to the side. Right. Bear with me on this. Two enormous testicles. And going up from them to the skyline with a vein up the middle is an enormous phallus. It's even got a little spurt of weeds coming out of the top. Um, it's the biggest thing in the painting. Um, it's, I, I can't point, so, um, but uh, yes, so, yes, so, yeah, yeah that's right. it, that's it, yeah, that's <clears throat> the, 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 the giant, as we were saying in this country, giant willy. Yeah, um, yeah, so there's the, the two, the virgin with the two big testicles and then, and then the giant willy going to the, the to basically the skyline. There are indeed other naughty um, images in the painting. There's a hand. Um, coming out of the um, the cave on on the left of the painting, um, with a sort of ladies' bits, um, and there's all sorts of things actually. I mean, this is basically what he thought of the Holy Family. Uh, this is not the best religious painting in the world. Yeah. Exactly what he thought of the idea of the Immaculate Conception. Yeah, you know, yeah, but... exactly. <clears throat> um... Yeah, um, and I mean, basically, you know, if once you see it, you can't unsee it. Uh, we 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 went to the. Um, Leonardo exhibition at London, London's National Gallery a few years ago, and we got talking about, you know, something in one of the paintings that we'll have to show you to some people we just met. And what they did in the exhibition was they had this version of one end of the room, a huge room, uh, and at the other end was the other version. There's two versions of this. And I was with these people who were, you know, went to art, art galleries and went to exhibitions all the time. Um, and I said, I just basically described the thing and they looked and they went, oh, oh no. <laughs> and, you know, we, we, we've given talks to and showed this to, you know, hundreds of people in, in at conferences. And usually as the very last thing that we present uh, for obvious reasons, um, you know, it has a bit of a gulp factor. Um, and, um, and yeah, there's two, there's two, you can actually put money on, the fact that there are two instant reactions. One is, <gasps> and the other is falling around laughing. Um, but this is Leonardo for you. I mean, he put astonishing things in his paintings because he was a brilliant psychologist. Mm -hmm. I mean, he knew that people only ever see what they expect to see or hope to see in a painting, which doesn't say much about me, does it? Um, <laughs> but, um, but, uh, but you know, um, I mean, so if they look at a beautiful a religious painting, they talk in hushed tones and practically pray in front of it, not knowing what they're actually praying in front of. Um, but yeah, so it's, uh, it was quite something. But this is Leonardo. I mean, a lot of people would be really shocked. Um, you know, uh, well, yes, he was shocking. He was a shocking person. 
Um, but in, he wasn't a pious religious painter at all. So, you know, there you are. <laughs> Yep, that that's uh that's definitely pretty interesting. And like you said, once you uh, once you point it out, you can't really unsee that. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. yeah <laughs> for sure. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it, knowing that he was a jokester, uh, you know, or someone who liked to, uh, you know, um, make people laugh. I mean, that's uh, certainly uh, a way of doing that. Yeah, um, we had one I've of read, our. Uh, I'm, sorry, I'm go so ahead. sorry. I read an account many years ago. I hope I don't uh, misrepresent uh, it, but uh, it's always stuck in my head, and I, I don't remember where I read it. But he he apparently was quite proud of dressing up and pros processing down the road, and because he was apparently a very handsome fellow, mm -hmm. and he liked to wear his fine clothes, but. This comment was that he thought he should be able to walk down the street naked because he thought he was a fine specimen of a human being. And he wanted to be everybody else to think the same thing. <laughs> and I was thinking about that as you were as you were discussing the painting. I thought, oh my goodness! <laughs> well, how naked can you get? <laughs> um, yeah. Yes. Yes. I. Yes. Actually, of course. Uh, how can I put this delicately? I wonder who the model was for that. Um, <laughs> I, I think he thought. I think he thought very well of himself. Yeah. Yes. Oh, he did. Yes. He, did. <laughs> he was very, very vain, and also he had this big thing about legacy. He, you know, he knew he had a very limited um, repertoire of of. of skills to with with which to imbue symbolisms and his message for the future you know as as we've all been saying he he never put anything in a painting he never wasted a brush stroke you know he everything he, he never put anything in a painting that was accidental or coincidental it was all meant every single little bit um but actually just going back to the um the giant thing um we went to a talk once where uh, somebody was going on about um, a tiny little flower in 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 the corner of the Virgin of the Rocks being a phallic symbol. There's two versions of the painting and no one's ever been sure why because they're exactly the same dimensions and as Lynn said um, <clears throat> the monks that commissioned it already had a frame so it was the contract specified the size. Um, both versions of the painting are exactly the same size. They think, well, why did he do two versions? And the, the other ones ended up in London. And in that one, the rocks, I mean, you can still see it once you've seen um, the, seen it in the Paris version, which, which is that one. this one. Yeah. And then you can see it, but it's not quite the, as obvious in the London one. And uh, various other clues to do with the way the uh, arrangement of the, the children and, and the arrangement of hands is different in the London one. Actually, I th think you might have the London one, Jeff. Yeah, let me see. Uh, let me, I'll switch back here and then bring it up. I believe it is, it's much more clear. Uh, it doesn't look as old. I think it's this one here. Yeah, yeah that's, that's it. it. Yeah. And it's in, in this one, the two children don't look anything like each other. Um, you know, one's got a halo, one's got a uh, John the Baptist cross, although that some people think that may have been added later. Mm. You can see the, the, the arrangement of rocks is there, but um, yeah, but you, it's still yeah. not quite so obvious. But down in front of it's hard for us to see here, yeah. Um, but yeah, right, that, yes, that painting right yeah. at the yeah. that flower right at the, at the bottom, which has that very big 
was it a stamen? Stem, yeah, yeah, yeah. Thing. yeah. Um, and we were reading in a book uh, before we'd actually realised, um, um, yeah, before Lynn had had the revelation, <laughs> revelation yeah. um, mm. somebody mm. talking about this painting and they're saying, you know, well, that is very strange, that thing sticking out. It actually looks like phallic symbolism. <laughs> but 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 there isn't any phallic symbolism in the Paris version. So what was that? And then mm. years years later, <laughs> we thought actually yes, there is. Yeah, something <laughs> rather big here. Yes, but it, it, and these things all kind of reinforce each other because you think well, you know, somebody completely independently of us has identified that flower as having uh, you know making some kind of statement based on phallic symbolism. Mm. Um, and that's that's all I said. They just, you know, it's a paragraph in a book somewhere. They said it's there. We don't, we don't know why, and 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 it's missing in the other painting. Um, so then, you know, we we then sees this year. Well, I see the thing. It, yeah. yeah now <laughs> it, it's it's not entirely Lynn's mind. <laughs> you know, so there's a precedence uh, for there's, it. There's some back up to that that's going mm -hmm. through his head. You know. Yeah. And yeah. as well, it, it also all, all the things that, you know, that argument I outlined about the John and Jesus imagery in this, um, which we, you know, say pieced together during the research that turned into Temple Revelation. Um, everything in leading to that deduction in the Paris painting is missing in the London one. It's like he's taken it all out. Mm. So it's like a kind of compare the images, mm. um, you know, spot the difference, mm. which actually draws your attention to those things. And again, mm. it, these are the things that reinforce, because when you're dealing with sim symbolism and imagery, um, you've, you've always got the thought in your mind, am I reading too much into this? Right. <laughs> you know, is, yep. it, is it my <laughs> preconceptions? You know, right. Mm -hmm. um, so when you've got a second painting um, that now it's almost like as a control that, that you can check it against, suddenly realise, no, actually, th this is really there. Mm. You know, um, it, it's not just us seeing what mm. we want to see. Mm. Um, I'm very pleased to hear it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm thinking of all the things, in the, you know, and the John symbolism that runs throughout Leonardo's works. Mm. And again, it's, mm. it's there over mm. and over again. He's mm. always putting uh, John the Baptist over and above Jesus, mm. um, you know, as various other paintings and that. So, and, and that's what started us on the thing, Rob, okay, that's something that Leonardo had, maybe it was just an eccentricity of his. What else What else is there before him? Could he have been part of something else? And then, you know, we've drawn, say, to the Templars, who have, a, they had a thing about John the Baptist. Mm -hmm. um, they are supposed to have worshipped the severed head. Um, and then you start to piece all these different um, um, other groups around that are playing with the same symbolism. Um, <clears throat> and eventually we trace the whole thing back to, you know, and again, you're thinking, well, maybe there's these people with heretical ideas about you know, the relationship between John the Baptist and Jesus. Um, <clears throat> and, and the other major theme in it, of course, is Mary Magdalene. Mm. Um, and you think, well, okay, People come up with heretical ideas and pass them on. Doesn't necessarily mean they're true. So, in the second part of the book, we go back to um, go back to the Gospels, the history, what was actually you know the, the real story going on there. Um, I'm finding that so much of what these later groups believed 
can be justified or you know fits in with mm. um, new, what New Testament scholars have been saying. You know, the whole thing about the relationship between Jesus and John the Baptist. Um, New Testament scholars and historians have realised for a long time that um, it's not the way it's portrayed in the Gospels. Um, it's known, for example, that in the very early days of Christianity, um, there was a rival religion which regarded John the Baptist as being the true Christ. Um, that religion is still still around for 500 years. It, it's recorded, you know, by, by people as, as obviously as a as a heresy for 500 years into the Christian era. Then it disappears. Um, but it's still around in the Middle East, and it actually is around to this very day. There's a, is, that the, is that the Mandian? Yes, yes. That's the yeah. ones, yeah. yeah. Um, that's, they are followers of John the Baptist. Mm, he, he was a great prophet, yeah. um, in a line of prophets that, that, that they had. Um, but actually, if you, if you look at their, their sacred book of John, um, which is one of their few sacred books that's been translated into English, um, it actually gives a very different account of Jesus' baptism. Um, you know, because, I mean, it's a historical fact that John was very famous in his day. He, he had this enormous magnetism and people flocked to be baptized by him, right. um, uh, including women, which people overlook. I mean, he, he was absolutely egalitarian with this extraordinary um, thing, whatever it was, you know, that he was offering, you know, repentance and, and absolution in a way. Um, but women also. Um, but yes, uh, but, you know, in the Bible, uh, you know, there's John actually groveling in front of Jesus, saying to people, behold, the Lamb of God, and I'm not worthy. And, you know, um, but in the book of John, the Mandian's book of John, um, basically Jesus begs John. He says, please baptize me. You're baptizing all these other people. Please baptize me. And John says, no, I'm not going to, because basically I've heard too much bad things about you. You're a false prophet. Um, you usurp my following. Um, I'm not going to do it. So Jesus begs and begs. And finally, John says, well, all right, then I'll do it. But against my better judgment. So he baptizes Jesus. And they, it, they describe how when he, he's done it, uh, a dark goddess called Ruha throws a, a black cross across the Jordan. And, um, and Jesus gets out of, out of the Jordan. And John, who is very angry by this time and obviously not very pleased with himself for having done something he didn't want to do, but he says, go and take thy dung stick with thee, which is um, strange. Um, but anyway, so so basically <laughs> it's an entirely different version of uh, the biblical story of uh, the, the baptism. Um, these are in the, the sacred texts of the Mandians. Yes, the yes, yes, yes. This is their, their uh, ancient text that they passed down. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, as, as I'm fond of saying, there are 35,000 different uh, Christian sects in the world. <laughs> and it's very difficult to, to uh, begin to comprehend the differences between one and another. So <laughs> that's, that's quite something. That's quite something. Um, well, but of course, the Mandians aren't actually Christian. That's the thing. I mean, okay. they're, they're, you know, they're, they're absolutely not Christian. They are Johannites. They follow John. Yeah. Um, they don't never, never, ever wanted to follow Jesus. They, uh, to them, Jesus is the enemy. So, right. So Christ, Christedness is about being anointed. Uh, yeah. 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 So. Mm -hmm. yeah. So that was the manner in which I was approaching that comment. But uh -huh. uh, 
I, I'm, I'm wondering if we, we kind of approached it back to front. Uh, the Da Vinci Code focused on the Last Supper. Yeah. And um, might we have a look at, at, at uh, his his masterpiece, his very famous masterpiece? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have two pictures of it. I have the original here um, that it's a little grainy because it's so old, but I'll go ahead and bring that up now. Mm -hmm. um, one question, too, and we can kind of touch on this later. Um, speaking of the Templars, there was a, a one of the uh, I believe mm -hmm. this was Judy also again was asking what percentage of Templar books are. Uh, out there for us to read do you feel are putting false research out about the templars is there quite a um, there's a difference between research and the conclusions you draw from it because yeah. you know the one thing you can definitely say about the templars is there are many mysteries about them absolutely um, you know i mean it always gets us with um uh you know kind of mainstream historians who say there's nothing strange about the temple, nothing secret about them. And our response to that is always, if there was nothing secret about the Templars, they weren't doing their job. Exactly. Yeah, why are we still talking about them today? Even in their own day, you know, they were into uh, you know, military strategy, which means spying, you know. So that's secrecy. Uh, yeah. You know. um, they're involved in diplomacy, which that's kind of spying as well. Yeah. They're, they're involved in the transfer of big large amounts of money from one place to another um you know which needs all the authentication of codes and things mm -hmm. and of course everything about them is about secrecy that's what the order is um they had to they had to be even even if the just conventional um depiction is correct they still are a secretive order but then you get all the genuine mysteries about the origins um, the suppression, the, the survival, they're all valid. Um, and obviously, on top of the actual information, the research, you can come to lots of different conclusions um, and you can, you, know, you can put together an argument. Um, and I think you know, some of those we agree with, some we don't. Um, some people disagree with, with our interpretation of what kind of the secret was. But... Um, you know, as for the information, people know the, the the stuff that is established in the history books. I think everyone agrees on. There are some things, you know. I think the people often exaggerate. For example, the um, number of Templars that were killed at the suppression. There's that scene in the Da Vinci Code movie where you see you know, them being burnt at the stake and you know, hundreds of them. And um, you know, we'd actually worked out that probably only one percent of the members of the order actually died during the suppression either executed or died under torture 99 percent went free you know so things like things things tend to get a bit exaggerated in a lot of the literature um and you know and some people do make obviously completely crazy claims sometimes but by and large you know it's we're all trying to piece together this this, mm. this mystery and we all you know, come to different conclusions uh, yeah, like, yeah. yeah well, i'm sorry yeah. no, no i was just going to say too that, yeah. that that they also wanted to kind of portray the fact oh we got them and they're they're taken down and and nothing right. to worry about now, right I and mean, that wasn't true right mm -hmm. yeah but i appreciate that you broke it down to a percentile because i mm -hmm. i i have not done that but i i firmly think 
that quite a few survive, but you have to also ask, are you talking about just the man on the horse or the three to six men it takes to keep that one knight on the horse? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then the farm, the the noble-born manager of the, the farm who has been, uh, is a Templar, uh, running the farm so so who is a templar and if you know it, it's a it, organically it really did uh, spread out into a network and they were involved with the merchant guilds so they and they had extended families that would support the templar knights themselves you know they had two centuries of of family input in support of this order that was tied to the merchant guilds so it, it you know i too agree that quite a few did get away and uh i do get frustrated with with the academic community who comes at it from the point of well the pope said they're over they're gone and uh twenty thousand knights just disappeared overnight right. well you know these men a lot of them were fit healthy they still had their fighting skills they still had their gear they had ships what have you they're going to use it yeah, you know, yeah, exactly. Spain, yeah. Spain and Portugal, they just changed their name. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Scotland, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And, um, and I, the, the this one is about, you know, we're all trying to find what the Templar secret was. Um, you know, did they have the Holy Grail, the Ark of the Covenant? Did, um, you know, we houses that they're Johannites, um, which, you know, they they we, in our reconstruction they picked that up during the uh, crusades during the holy land mm -hmm. was the mandians who are now these days um very restricted to um areas of southern iran and iraq or that's actually not true they're communities all around the world now since you know um but um yeah, before the recent gulf wars um they were confined to an area then but in the past, it's known they were much more widespread mm. around the Middle East, mm. and it's known they were in, Mandians were in towns uh, and villages where Templars had property. Well, the Crusaders mm. had some kind of interaction is actually quite likely mm. between them. So we think they adopted it from there. Mm. So that's our answer. Yeah. Well, there were, of course, the Templars did adopt John the Baptist as their patron saint, mm. and the numbers of times you read anything about their history june 24th this happened june 24th that happened june 24th this happened uh it, it's constant uh it is a significant date yeah and there's no particular reason no one's ever really explained why that should be um you know and then you have the severed head imagery which some of the knights during the trials actually said mm. was the head or represented the head of john the baptist um but with, with all these things it, it it's you know it, it's not saying that you know all the thousands of the members of the orders were all this or they were all johannites or all gnostics or whatever it is um a um you know a group within them that had this secret, you know, within the leadership. So we don't think that, you know, every single Templar knew what the secret was. Most of the Templar knights, I'm, you know, we're sure were just what they appeared to be, mm. you know, yeah, soldier It was, it was a hardcore. It yeah. was an inner circle right. hardcore. Right. But, but I mean, you know, people say, oh, yeah, but, you know, they were called the, the, the poor knights of Christ. You know, you can't get away from that. But it could be that they were being very clever because, as, as Gretchen pointed out, Christ just means anointed one. So they could be referring not to Jesus Christ, but to John Christ. John also presumably being sure. anointed. So the poor knights of Christ 
exactly who are we talking about there you know so um i mean that's just that's just an idea i have no evidence for that but it, but with with everything else that we know it is quite likely shall, shall we say you know but as Clive said, yeah, I mean, my... yes, it's every, you know, it, we can't stress enough that we're not saying all the Templars were Johannites. That's just, you know, no, absolutely not. But question. Uh, hard, hard call, uh, you know. I have a question for you. Uh, do you, uh, you're, you're, you, you are, um, if both these men are uh, connected to the Mandians, uh, do you think that they are of the Davidic bloodline? And if, John hadn't been executed, then he would have made. I don't know what I'm trying to ask. He, he, you know, would he then have been maintained leadership? Uh, yeah, I mean, personally, I don't actually go with the you know, even Jesus being of the Davidic bloodline. I think that okay. was something that was, um, was, was brought in later, um, or whether. You know, maybe he was trying to promote himself as such at the time. It's, it's. Um, I mean, it's a big question, but I'm not entirely persuaded myself. Um, and the the whole um, idea of John and, and Jesus being related only kind of hangs on one particular uh, bit of one of the Gospels. You know, the the meeting between, um, you know. Mary when she's pregnant with with um, John the Baptist mother who's pregnant um, and the evidence is very strong that whole little episode was invented later in order to make a specific point um, because uh, you know in the what's it the, the Magnificat isn't it these are the words that that, that the Virgin Mary uh, proclaims when she's meeting John the Baptist's mother. My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in yeah. God my Saviour. Which, that, which that is, whole thing. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing Mary's mm. supposed to say, and it's become the sort of key text for the uh, for Marian Christians. And the interesting thing is, when you actually go back and look at the the, the origins of that story, in the original, it was actually John the Baptist's mother that said that, not not Mary. Mm. Um, so, I mean, what, what they think is that, you know, that there were a lot of kind of, if you like, gospels or hymns or poems about John the Baptist around in the early days that were created by his followers. And some of those actually were adapted into the gospels, but they kind of changed them around to... Um, yeah, to, to refer to Jesus, not yeah. John. Yeah, yeah, during the Council of Nicaea 325, uh, uh, quite a lot was changed and there were other councils that subsequently made changes as well but um, I think the Ethiopian Bible is quite quite a hefty tome compared to the Western Bible they have uh, 30 bo further books than than the Western uh, European Bible has so uh, Orthodox you know the Ethiopian um, uh, the, these differences are, are intriguing um, uh, forgive me, I'm, I'm suddenly wanting to get into the Last Supper. So it brings up another figure. Albert wasn't just about John the Baptist. So no, 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 no. It was about it was about herself, herself. Yes. So yes, if we could look at um, the Last Supper. Mm -hmm. Yes. 
Yes. Um, yes. So um, this is uh, this is obviously well known uh, for its own sake, but to a whole generation, I suppose, it's well known through the Da Vinci Code. Um, um, and um, yeah. So um, again, it it comes down to us. Um, we it was well. Actually, I woke up one morning. We, we happened to be in Glastonbury on a trip, and um, I woke up one morning and thought because we've been studying Leonardo's work, but we didn't have any you know anything with us and in those days didn't have a phone or anything or laptop we're on we're on holiday but i woke up and I, I i thought it's a woman it's a woman next to jesus it's a woman it's a woman so we went all around astonbury in the bookshops looking for a book of, of the, <laughs> the last supper so we could see and i did i think we found one in the end and we, we, we looked at, we looked at this um and you know since that moment um you know obviously we put that in the temple of revelation but we realized there's lots of other stuff in the painting and also the woman you know who is she well um you know it's there's a, a giant m shape created by um the the composition um uh so that presumably is the initial of her name um and um, and you know actually what the eye is drawn to her and i'm just looking at this actually and noticing for the first time, how the light falls on her face more than anybody else's at the table. Oh, it does, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, it, um, I mean, basically, she's the main one. The light is falling on her. Mm. Um, and if you notice that um, her clothes are the mirror image of Jesus's. So she's wearing a red cloak and he's wearing a red robe and she's wearing a blue robe and he's wearing um, a, a blue cloak. Um, it's almost literally as well as if they're joined at the hip, you know. So they're each other's um, other half. Um, and, um, I mean, there's, there's an awful lot in this painting. There's the John gesture, if you look to the right of Jesus. Um, it's like the disciple is saying, remember John, you know, even while you're doing this. Um, there's there's things like, um, you know, we, we all know that, uh, you know, the Last Supper was was there to instigate um the the communion or the mass you know where jesus is um the, where the the bread represents jesus's body broken on the cross for us and the the wine represents his blood spilt for our sins um but if you look at this table there's no great chalice in front of jesus there's no i mean there's a tiny glass with about an inch of wine in it there's not much um, wine on the rest of the table. And as for the bread, yes, there's bread on the table, but very, very little of it is actually broken. So is is Leonardo saying, I don't believe that, that Jesus sacrificed, made the sacrifice for us? Um, or maybe even, I don't accept it. Um, but if you could just move the picture to your left so we can yes so the the guy bending down uh, that's uh, yes that one um that's well known um to be it's a fact that that was modeled that's leonardo himself but again notice he's got his back to jesus as he had um as clive pointed out before so basically yeah um with, there's an awful lot to unpick here there's i mean there's other stuff here um there's a there's a Peter with his his hand across we'll have to call her Magdalene across Magdalene's throat um um which is you know it, I mean it's it's interesting because it could be that he's got his hand on on her shoulder but no if you look it's right. actually it's actually like a knife it's it's foreshortened I mean it's 
you see <clears> on the back on the side it looks like a knife um and um yeah so uh there's an awful lot going on here i mean there's more than that of course yeah. and peter is holding a knife behind his back so yeah yeah no apparent reason yeah um, yeah yeah this here yeah yeah That's yeah. It, yeah yeah <clears throat> yeah i mean originally we, we did write in the book that it's uh a disembodied hand it didn't belong to anyone at the table because before the painting was restored and this is the restored version believe it or not <laughs> it's it's suffered a lot over the the centuries mm. you, you couldn't actually make out what was going on in that part of it mm. but when mm. they did restore it you can now see it's actually kind of mm. twist it, it's yeah, the it's twisted, twisted hand yeah, of, yeah. of yeah. peter yeah but holding this knife and you know everything is symbolic in there so you think well what's he holding a knife um mm. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> presumably these are references to stuff in the Gnostic Gospels of the hostility oh, between Peter and Mary yeah. Michael. I mean, technically, you know, you, 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 the, the answer to that is that, you know, he's, he's, he's going to leap for, for Judas, you know, who's, who's obviously the baddie and he's just, you know, Jesus just said he's going to betray me. But actually knowing what we know from the, the, the Gospels that are not in the New Testament, uh, the so-called Gnostic Gospels, such as the Gospel of Philip, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel indeed of Mary Magdalene, um, you you discover some quite um, unpleasant things about the followers of Jesus. Um, for example, um, you discover that Mary, Mary wasn't popular among the others. She was kind of the Yoko Ono of the group. Um, she was she was divisive. Um, um, I mean, obviously, Jesus is besotted with her. That's that much is clear. Um, but the the men, particularly of of the of the following, uh, they really couldn't take her at all. They 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 couldn't understand why Jesus gave her so much time and and took her seriously. And she did not behave like a woman of her time and place. I mean, she mm -hmm. on her feet, you know, arguing points, answering questions. There's one bit among the group where. There's something, I think there's 42 questions being discussed. And of these 42 doctrinal religious questions, Mary either asks or answers 39 of them. And the, the, the men who think it, you know, it was their due to be first and foremost in this group, although there are, they are, there are other women there, but the men are particularly Simon Peter, you know, uh, they, they hate this. They, they keep appealing to Jesus and saying, why, why do you allow this woman to do these things? Why do you allow it? And Peter really hates her. At one point, Mary goes to Jesus and says, I'm afraid of Peter because he's threatened me uh, and he hates me and all the race of women. And on the other hand, Jesus goes, uh, sorry, uh, Peter goes to Jesus and says, let Mary leave us because women are not worthy of life. Um, so, as long as Jesus is around, he's obviously the ultimate smoother over and diplomat, you know, but the group is at each other's throats. And it's very interesting because traditionalists say, oh, you shouldn't take Gnostic Gospels seriously. They're a load of rubbish, you know, don't even bother with them. But it's very interesting. I mean, sometimes they are a bit fanciful when they talk about other worlds and cosmic stuff. They make all that up. But when they're talking about the people, Jesus, Jesus and his followers, they leap into sharp focus. And it's obviously they're all drawing on the same um, source, be it a, an oral source or a written source we no longer have, because they describe exactly the same things. They describe Jesus being besotted, besotted with Mary Magdalene, the boys in, in the band hating her, and Peter threatening to kill her. 
Um, yeah. and, and, but, and if, as the traditionalists say, you, you know, they're, they're, it's all nonsense, you shouldn't take any notice of them. Uh, and they were, they were just, you know, the, the, the Gnostic Gospels were just invented by sort of airy-fairy kind of, you know, Gnostics who didn't have any handle on anything. Well, in that case, surely if they'd invented them, they would have made it all sweetness and light and all happiness within Jesus's group. You know, it would have been a magical Disney-like, you know, love affair, each other getting on really well. But no, there's this massive row going on the whole time. Uh, I mean, a real unpleasant vibe. Um, so, uh, no, I, I do not accept for one minute that the Gnostic Gospels are without value. In fact, I think they're of tremendous value, but only when they're talking about the people when they're talking about their idea of the different rungs of heaven and the different rungs of hell, you, you can forget that. But um, but the, the actual people know they're onto something. Well, from what we know of the culture at that time, it was very strict and women were uh, seen and not heard. Mm -hmm. And you could even go so far as to say economic slavery. Uh, mm -hmm. yeah. You know, yeah. and when you married in, married into the your husband's home. You 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 were a servant to mm. the household. Your your uh, mother-in-law, etc. Mm. Uh, and of course, you had to ra raise your children as well. But but mm. it was a very strict culture to the level with which Westerners cannot grasp. Except yeah. except in Egypt, and Egypt at that time. Yeah had the most, I mean, not by today's standards, but had for the standards of the day, had the most egalitarian society in the Roman Empire. Um, women could own businesses, could instigate uh -huh. divorce. Um, and there's, I mean, it is known not from biblical sources, but other sources, um, evidential sources, that John the Baptist had his headquarters for what was a massive sort of church, John the Baptist church, um, but his headquarters was in Alexandria in Egypt. That's why. Um, and it's also, I mean, most modern um, biblical scholars are agreed um, that John, Jesus started off as one of John the Baptist's disciples. So it is possible that, you know, well, it's, it's probable in that case that Jesus was over in, in Egypt for quite a while. Um, and it's very probable that Mary Magdalene was as one of John's disciples because he had female disciples. So, um, so yeah, so she either was Egyptian or uh, really liked the Egyptian way of thinking about things because, you know, the mission arrives in Galilee with all the traditional Galilean men who were, you know, basically, um, you know, misogynists, let's be honest. Um, as you say, part of, part of the traditional outlook on women. And there's this, there's this feisty woman who won't shut up, who, who takes the floor at meetings and insists on, on lecturing them. And Jesus <laughs> is wonderful. And they just don't know what's hit them. You know, they, they can't get their heads around it at all. But uh, so, she, so there's the stamp of Egypt on her. You know, she, she behaves like an Egyptian woman, even if she wasn't. You know, she, she'd been exposed to the culture. <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. Um, one thing too, we got about a little, just a little more than 20 minutes left before we hit the two hour mark. And uh, as I mentioned before, I'd try to keep these to about two hours. Um, I wanted to kind of head back a little bit, if we could, um, back towards the Templar a little bit. Um, one thing that I was noted, and I heard you mention in one of your other um, uh, 
speaking engagements that you had, um, that there was the possibility, you know, we all heard about when the Templars originally um, came about, but there was also a bit about the, that the, the Knights Templar could possibly have existed before uh, 1118. Is that something that you guys have, uh, that you two have found and looked into or? Uh, yes, there are. <clears throat> I was, the thing we were saying, you know, everything about the Templars is a mystery, including right. the origins. Because mm -hmm. um, we have to remember that, um, you know, the only account that we have of the Templar origins is, was written 50 years after the event. Mm -hmm. actually by somebody that didn't like the templars um mm -hmm. so this is where you know the, the date of 1118 comes from um personally i think the evidence is actually stronger it was 1119 for the official kind of founding um not that a year matters um but um you know there are some intriguing references from a few years before that seem to be talking about um some very similar order you know to the uh the the Count of Champagne, I think, uh, off the top of my head, um, who's talking about something very similar as if it already exists, and he's someone mm -hmm. that later joins the Templars. Um, so, yeah, there's at least the idea of it seems to have been in the air four or five years earlier. Um, and I think, you know, the, the one thing, um, again, going back to the idea that the mainstream academic idea nothing secret about the templars um you know whichever way you look at it even if the templars were just exactly what conventional history says they were there's certainly a conspiracy going on around their origin now mm -hmm. the conspiracy may have just been to found an order you know to to defend uh, christendom because the idea of the pope having kind of in a way his own personal army uh would have got a lot of resistance from kings and, and things like that. So you had to do it in a very kind of behind the scenes way um, to get all the deals done. Mm -hmm. um, so even if it was no more, the order was no more than it appears to be. There's certainly um, something going on. Um, the question for us has always been, um, yeah, so there are kind of two views of the secret side of the Templars, which is either that they were, you know, they started off being just what they appeared to be, um, but they discovered something in while they were in the Holy Land. They came across an artifact or an idea. They met up with Mandaeans, perhaps something like that. Um, or did somebody in Europe know that there was this this whatever and go looking for it? And you created the order as a, a sort of cover for going to look for this thing. Um, we've never come up with an answer to that because no, nobody really knows, but it's it's one of those, um, uh, you know, these suggestions, the, this apparent evidence that the, the Templars were around a few years before they're supposed to have been does kind of point to this idea of them knowing that there was something. An agenda. But, yeah, and now that the Crusades have opened the way, you can go over there and look for it or... Well, Bernard, Bernard de Clairvaux was so involved in, in that process, mm -hmm. a master, he was a mastermind behind the order. Mm -hmm. So how did this group of nine men gain prime real estate access to uh, the king, in, in, you know, in, in Jerusalem? They have the Temple Mount that they're 
you know, using as their stables, but they're digging underneath. But mm -hmm. this is a, a new order that hadn't been tested, no real credentials other than the power behind the Cistercians and Bernard de Clairvaux being close to the Pope. To me, it smacks of a secret mission to go and seek out, and they had to be physically fit, capable men, dangerous men, uh, who could defend themselves and whatever it is they went to uh, discover. Hmm. That's that's certainly my take on on it from an anthropological point of anthropology yeah. point of view. Yeah. Um, they shouldn't have been given such close access to the palace. Uh, yeah. Some something's right. There's something's going on behind the scenes. Yeah, you know, yeah. It's and of course you get that flavor all the way through pretty much, you know, everything. You know, mm. um, every point of their history mm. that you know, which you don't get with the Knights Hospitaller. You know, there's or even yeah. the Teutonic Knights. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so it's it's not people now as you know it, it, the complaints often made it's people kind of projecting now and making a mystery where there isn't one um it's rather the other way around yes the the mysteries have given rise to all kinds of theories um and you know all kinds of people trying to create um new templar orders based on what they think the original templars were like but it's the mysteries that have made that happen you know, because there were no, you don't get mysteries about the Teutonic Knights, as you're saying, mm. and people trying to form a new form, form of Teutonic Knights mm. with a big secret at the core of it. Mm. There's something, you know, it, yeah, it's um, not made of nothing. Yeah. Indeed. Um, I had a big thought and <laughs> and then it left. So I apologize. <laughs> well, yeah, while you're thinking about that, go ahead and think about that for a minute. But one of the things that I, I wanted to. Uh, it was a good, it was cool. <laughs> you, you have to come back to you. And in the meantime, I'll just ask this, that, you know, you know, we, we heard about all the, uh, the, the charges that were brought against them, um, by the King of France at the time and, uh, working with the particular Pope at the time and brought these charges up against them. What do you, what, what's your take on those charges? Did, did that, was that something that, um, that was completely made up? I mean, what, what's your take on the, the charges that was to bring them down? Well, uh, you know, it's it's fashionable now, certainly among academics, to say, oh, you know, the charges um, of basically homosexual practices um, and blasphemous acts such as spitting and trampling the cross and and idolatry, worshipping a bearded, severed head, um, you know, that, that it, all of that was just trumped up by the King of France and the Pope because they wanted to get their hands on, on the Templars' money. Right. Um, and um, but, you know, just look at the nature of the the claims uh, in the light of, you know, our work on on the Johannite in inner core trampling on the cross. I mean, yes, it's horrific, obviously, to Christians. But if you're a Johannite, that's what you would do because you don't recognize Jesus as as Christ worshipping a bearded severed head. John was beheaded. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I, certainly we don't think that they were made up. And in fact, there's evidence, you know, from some of the knight's own uh, um, accounts, not all um, from under torture, um, that in fact they did, that, you know, they, they they didn't all see the, the head to be, but they, at a certain level of initiation, they did have to um, 
abuse uh, Christian symbols. Um, so that would certainly go along with the idea that, uh, you know, there was something in the charges leveled again, in those charges leveled against them. Doesn't, of course, stop the French king and the, the Pope also wanted to get their hands on their money. Mm -hmm. I mean, for me, um, but the, the thing is, uh, the, if that's what the king was after, he didn't get the money anyway. So, yeah, yeah. Um, but I mean, the key thing for me is the, you know, the Sheenon document from. 1307, well, <clears throat> a bit before, you know, that was sort of rediscovered, yeah, or promoted in 2007 for the three hundred. Yes, promoted is a good word. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that had it a while. Mm -hmm. um, but it, you know, that explicitly says, you know, five of the knights, uh, five of the leaders, you know, questioned by the Pope's men, no torture, um, you know, promise of, you know, uh, absolution, everything like that. And, you know, all five say, yes, when we were initiated, we had to deny Christ and, uh, you know, and the cross. Um, and, um, I, I mean, only one of the five said they saw the, the Baphomet head idol. Um, all denied the homosexual practices. But they all say... Yeah, that's part of the initiation. We had to do that. Um, now, so it's a yeah. That that was part of it. At the, when when that document was was published in two thousand and seven, the explanation was put out with it that well, that's because if they were captured, you know, um, uh, you know, by the Muslims. They would be tried. They would be forced to do this. So you, you, this was kind of a practice for that. Um, and I'm thinking, well, one, it doesn't make any sense, and two, none of them actually say that. Mm. Um, mm. They just say, yeah, the initiation said you have to do this. Mm. Um, so, so yeah, I think the, the 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 core charges, even if they were, you know, they were interpreted in, um, you know, in some other way. Um, uh, do, you know, they do seem to have happened. These things, they, they were doing these things. Um, some of these things, certainly that part. Um, and I also think from the way, you know, when the charges or the accusations were first made to the King of France, um, and, you know, he sent people in to basically infiltrate and join the order to see if this happened at their initiation. And they said, yeah, it does. So that was a part of it. Now, how do you explain, you know, we've got, the explanation that Lynn said, which fits the Johannite idea, um, people make them up with other explanations, but we think that the fact is, you know, if that was any other historical event, I think people would say, well, yeah, that happened. You know, mm. The evidence is strong enough. Mm. Um, you know, it's just a matter mm. of how you explain it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, there was something about the order, you know. Mm. Gretchen, did your thought come back to you yet on it, that? It did. Okay. My thought was that it was such a large organization, a, a, a corporate uh, uh, structure, really, um, modeled on the Cistercian success story. And uh, there is scope for many uh, secrets. And I think that's where some of the confusion comes in is because they, uh, the inner workings with their finances, they had to keep their precious items uh, secure, etc. So 
there is plenty of scope for secrecy mm -hmm. and secrets. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So. And also it was, let's not forget, an initiatory organization. So, um, you know, so to get yeah. to the next grade, you had to go through an initiation and all of that was kept secret. You know, yeah. Uh, so, so as is, yeah. You're saying, uh, certainly as you're saying, not all of them are pleasant. Um, yes. Yes. Uh, yeah. Like a, um, this is a very crude example, a, uh, a hazing in, in university in, in, in the USA where you get through, put through a, 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 a battery ram of, of obstacles before you can join a fraternity, you know, a frat house in, in, in the US at a university. Uh, so for, I don't mean to lower the tone at all i'm just thinking in my head a modern example of uh, well i'm yeah i mean to, to some extent absolutely but um in the case of the potential johannite content of these initiations yes yeah, yeah, it's, so, yeah, it's a religious yeah. well it's a heretical that is a big well. deal that yeah. is a big deal yeah. yes yes and, uh, and the other thing um you know with the templars being that kind of order um as you say big corporate order um is that also, they were there to try and find out information about the other side. They were actually open to, you know, all kinds of ideas. Um, yeah. And it's not, it's something we've been looking at more um, recently, because we tend to sort of always think, well, what happened when they were over, you know, in the Holy Land? And there were all kinds of, 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 of sects from, you know, left over from the early days of Christianity and Jewish sects with different ideas. And attempters, they were, were interested. They wanted to know stuff. Um, but it's only kind of quite recently we've been looking more into the contacts they would have had in Spain at that time, because you're a big Muslim community there that brought that brought stuff in. Um, uh, you know the the order in Spain um, and Portugal um, it did seem to be a kind of law unto itself that did things that you know. That, that they actually did yeah. have Jewish and Muslim members. Mm. They allowed people into the order, which didn't happen anywhere else. Um, they they had women members in mm. Spain and, and other yeah. places. Um, you know that's um, uh, you know that's established. That's documented, even though their own rule said they couldn't have. Mm. Um, but you know, at the time of the suppression in was in, in in Germany, you know, they had to have special arrangements to house the women that had been found in Templar holdings, who were sisters, you know, mm -hmm. the sisters of the temple. Um, and again, a lot of this stuff is just kind of brushed aside. In, yeah. in the main yeah. They just know it was an yeah. order of, of, uh, of knights who'd taken monastic vows. Now, they seem to have been um, assembling information. And mm -hmm. so it's very easy for us, to, you know, another thing we looked at is that... Um, you know, the, the, the symbols they used on their seals, particularly in France, they used Gnostic images that would take, you know, old Gnostic images from things that have been declared heretical centuries before. And I must that have known. was interesting. I picked that up watching uh, some of your, your interviews, your, your talks, and they were open to, I believe, Islamic scholars, Judaic scholars, mm -hmm. You know, uh, Muslim culture, Moorish culture was very uh, pre pre um, advanced. You know, um, uh, at that time, uh, going back 900 years, and and the Templars, being pragmatic, would have benefited from 
the scholarship in yeah. these other cultures. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And also, so, it then becomes inevitable when you're doing that, because you know, even if you're, you're an order that you officially exist to defend strict Catholic um, Christianity. Um, yes, actually, seeing someone put up about the Abraxas seal. Yes, that's the Gnostic one. Interesting. Abraxas was also associated with John the Baptist, which is interesting. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, it's from a, a, they're both kind of heralds of, um, you know, the. Yes, one of your books. Yeah. Do you have a, uh, the the Abraxas symbol? Uh, which book do you recommend that you've written that that might be in? Do you, do you remember? It must be in, it must be in Temple of Revelation. It is. I'm okay. Sure. Okay. Because um, you've, you've written so many that that uh, <laughs> might be. So get this book. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Tom what I'd like to do also now here's here's like the the burning question that so many of us have, including me. Um, and it, it will will kind of start to wrap up here a little bit with this. But um, the Templars. Now you had kind of alluded before that things didn't go down maybe the way the history books or people would like to say that they were all wiped out. We got them all. We didn't get their money. But mm -hmm. so so what do you think? Um, you know, you talked about some of them just going on with life as they kind of were before, maybe some of them getting their properties back that were taken mm -hmm. from them. Uh, talk about this after, mm. you know, Friday the 13th, 1307 and the years going forward. What do you think happened with them? Did they possibly in the ships, the ships that disappeared? Yeah. Well, there were, there were two fleets, actually. They, ah. had, they had one fleet um, at Cyprus and one fleet at La Rochelle in France, and wow. both disappeared from the record. Oh. Um, um, and um, so, so yes, so if, so if you have ships and the treasury, when the French king went to seize all their stuff, um, had very little left in it. So they'd, they'd, already, they'd taken it, they'd gone. Specifically one person, actually, Gerard de Villiers. Yeah, Gerard de Villiers, who was a preceptor. Um, he um, basically he seemed to be in charge of the exodus, um, and they he so presumably he took the fleet, he took the treasure. Where did he go? Is the big yes. question. Yes. Um, so I mean, we know that as Clive said, you know, in, in in Spain and Portugal, they basically they were treated very well by the, the the monarchs there, and they were basically allowed to just basically change their name. So they're no longer Templars, but you know, they were the Order of Christ or whatever. Um, and so essentially they just went on there. But uh, the Templars as such, um, went, uh, some of them uh, went to Scotland um, because mm -hmm. Scotland uh, was pretty free and tolerant and accepting of mm -hmm. them. Um, and actually to some extent England, but, you know, Eng England's always a bit dodgy. Um, um, and, 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 you know, and they might well have gone elsewhere. You know, I mean, they had, they had an awful lot of... The wherewithal they had two fleets you know mm -hmm. and they had money uh, and they were as gretchen said they were you know the elite fighting force you know yes. and an adventure and sort of macho adventure seeking was in their dna you know apart mm -hmm. from anything else so so suddenly they were free in a way you know to go and do whatever they wanted right and they had the wherewithal to do that yeah absolutely yeah but I think, you know, it's possible to identify, you know, a lot of them, because, you know, always going back to this thing that if they had this big secret, 
most members of the order wouldn't have known about it. They were just what they appeared to be. And you can find them, you know, most of the the 99% that went free, um, you know, join other orders, go into, go into monastic orders. Some of them lived out on, lived their lives out on the old properties with a pension. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you can identify where most of them are um, and they just carry on life as before. But you're looking for the inner group. That's the one you want. Mm. Um, and that's when you start thinking, well, where did their ships go? Because mm. the records of everything that was confiscated from all the temple properties are still around and they're very detailed and there's not a single ship in any mm. of them. Uh-huh. So, you know, mm. so therefore they couldn't have found, you know, there's all debate about mm. how big the Templar mm. fleet was, but even if there only been two ships, that's all you need to get, mm. you right. know, load, load mm. them up with treasure or whatever. Right. Um, and horses. The, 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 Gerald de Villiers also took all the horses. Yeah, mm-hmm. like, yeah, um, yeah, 150 of them. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. I, I, I saw a, a question has come out from somebody about the, you know, did the Templars make it to America? I mean, the, the short answer is we don't know. Um, <laughs> they they could have done because you, you've got the two things when when it, you know when it comes to Oak Island. It's like, was it the Templars as they were in you know at the time of the suppression? or during the the official lifetime of the order and then you've got this whole thing with um you know henry sinclair yes that's where i was going to go next yeah in the 15th century Mm -hmm. um go you know could it been him because there's the templar connection you know the idea Mm -hmm. that that he's he funded that expedition with the templar treasure that had actually gone to scotland so you know did it go directly into america did it go to Scotland and then over to America and Oak Island? All kinds of permutations. And it's, it's so, it, it's frustrating. There's nothing solid to, to hang it on. But I mean, they want someone yeah. to get to the bottom of that pit. Well, yeah, <laughs> well, it doesn't everybody. But I mean, I mean the, the thing is, you know, you, you start off the basic questions, you know, could, could the, the, the Templars have gone? Yes, they could. They had the ships, they had the money, uh, and also they, they had the sense of, adventure and the, the driven sense of adventure you know mm-hmm. and, um and um you know could they have got to america yes they could um could they have got to oak island yes they could you know i mean there's there's nothing stopping them in in, in as far as one knows you know having done that but then of course it sort of fit that the evidence fizzles out but i mean hopefully yeah. you know i mean you know you guys will probably find something very soon <laughs> um, I hope so. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. Well, actually, we've come up with a, uh, an amazing amount of research along the Saint the Saint Lawrence River, and there are other authors too uh, who have done so. Uh, Luca Santoni, a producer from Livorno, Italy. Uh, the town was built by the Medici's. Vera, uh, Veronazzo uh, is hailed as a hero there for having crossed uh, the Atlantic Ocean. Granted, he was by all accounts, uh, not a very good person, and he met a sticky end, but he did cross the Atlantic and, and uh, accomplished a great deal for his his kingdom. Mm-hmm. Uh, for, uh, he, I believe he was hired by the, no, he was hired by the French king, forgive me. Uh, the French king hired him, and I suppose he wants something, somebody nasty to, to do something like that, but it was a shame, uh, but the Native Americans did clobber him in the end. Basically, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, there are 
interesting ruins along the St. Lawrence River, anomalies that are worth investigating. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And again, like, does it, is there proof of it? No, there just is not. Mm -hmm. uh, it looks like there may be some proof. And, and I think you guys have alluded to it before, uh, talking about them being up into Scotland and mm -hmm. working with, I guess there was actually the, um, and I had written it down, but it was the, uh, the battle that took place up there. Um, with Bannaburn. Robert Bruce. Yeah. yeah. On the yes. 24th of June. Yeah. Yeah. And all of a sudden they get help from this great, uh, you know, force of uh, fighting men or whatever. Mm -hmm. They get some help. Mm -hmm. And was that the Templars, uh, mm -hmm. you know, or a remnant yeah. of them? Yeah. You know. It's a bit always like about the Templar story in Scotland, um, you know, because they certainly were up there, you know, we've, mm -hmm. we've been to the village of Temple, uh, as it's now called. Um, which um, you know, the, one of their, their very first um, properties outside of the Holy Land. So there were Templars around there, and then when finally they get round to um, you know England invades, they finally get round to following the Pope's order to round up all the Templars. They can only find two of them, mm -hmm. and they're both English. You know, and the people that give evidence against those two. Who you know they they confess to things and are again just let off you know, um, the people that give all the evidence against them are the Sinclair family. It's like, <laughs> was this a setup or what? <laughs> well, we need to we need to give them something. Oh, it's a couple of English guys. They, 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 yeah. Yeah, well, they're uh, English. nobody does know what happened. There, there were Knights Templar in Scotland. Nobody knows what happened yeah. to them. Yeah. Right. Um, so yeah, they, they had to go somewhere, and they had to go somewhere for a reason. Because mm -hmm. and again, because remembering what they're faced with is not execution, as in the Vinci Code movie. Basically, you know, the only ones that went to the stake were those that confessed, repented, and then withdrew their confession. But if you, uh, you know, you could plead guilty to all of the things they were accused of. Um, and you were given a penance and absolution, and then then you could go. You were still held by your orders, by your oaths. So you still you had to go to another order or enter a monastery. But you know they were not big punishments. So there's not, you know, the Scottish Templars could have just held their hands up and said, "Yeah, we did that. You know, now can we go?" Um, but no, they just disappear mm. as they do in other places. Yeah, because they weren't being threatened with the greatest punishments. Only if they confessed and then withdrew their confession. Right, right. That's the only way. That's all, the only way you get executed. Mm. Other than that, you're kind of let off. Mm. You know? Interesting. Um, which I find is actually a more compelling reason to think there was something secret going on. Right. Yes. You could, you could get out of it so easily. Right. And yet some people did choose rather to to run for it. Um, mm. Malay. So, yeah. there's, a there's a reason for that. Mm. You know. mm -hmm. Do you believe they had any uh, of the religious artifacts that are maybe claimed to have, like the Ark of the Covenant or the, the menorah? Well, if, if they'd have had the Ark of the Covenant, um, I mean, the Ark, one of the main things about the Ark was that it was it was supposed to be a weapon of mass destruction, you know, yeah. uh, and they were soldiers, so they would have used it in battle. So they almost certainly didn't have it. Very true, huh? Yeah. Wow. But, um, mm -hmm. You know, they... They, they could well have done. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, say, 
till we find it, we don't know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah very true. It's yeah. great to ask these questions mm -hmm. because it helps the thinking process for one thing. But Gretchen, did you have any uh, final thoughts? No, uh, perhaps they might come back at some point and discuss Red Chateau. Uh, the Templars are bound up in the mysteries of the uh, of Renla Chateau, I believe, and mm. uh, Jeff has quite a few Templar followers, so yeah. I'm one of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we do for sure. Uh, man, I tell you what, this has been fascinating. I know we could go on for hours, uh, but I, I try to, like I said, I try to keep these to two hours just for the sake, and especially for you guys, because I know your time difference uh, over in the UK, and it's getting late over there, and I don't want to hold you up. Uh, but this has been truly fascinating, and we, um, I would love to have you come back. I know there's so many things that we didn't, uh, the Black Madonnas. I mean, there's so many things that we could keep going on um, and, the, and the Magdalene. I mean, I, being a Christian, I, I, I really struggle with all of some of that. I'll say some of that, not all of it. I do know that there was suppression of the female um, in the, in all of this and in the Vatican and everything. And so I'm really kind of torn on much of this. Um, but you have amassed so much information um, that we'd love to, I'd love to hear uh, more of your thoughts on at some point in the future. If you love, love to come we'd back. love to come back. We've had such a lovely time. At least yeah. I, it's a privilege. <laughs> it's a privilege to have you both here today. I've oh, really appreciated my time with you. And, and Jeff, always thank you for your invitation and having me back too. So. You were the perfect person to be here with this. Uh, absolutely <laughs> on top you. of my list to, to help. And, and of course you, you brought the, uh, you know, your, your, uh, a connection uh, with Lynn yeah. and Clive, um, you know, asking them to come was, I thank you so much for that. And I am so like, yes, thank you. Thank you. For me, I just thought, wait a minute, maybe Lynn would like, and Clive would like to come oh, When you told me about it, I was like, what? No way. They, they would come. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I, I was like, I'm so honored to have you both. I really am. Yeah. It's, it's oh, truly been it. fascinating. Yes, yes. <laughs> no, we'd love to. No, we would love to. Absolutely. Thank you. Paranormal on your yeah. your other show. Yes, yeah. beyond our world. John, John was in there, and he 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 saw all this, and we we kind of talked about it before. But yes, we have to have you on beyond our world because, uh, man, I, I it's like it's one of those ones where we might have to do a two parter because it sounds like you have a lot of interesting things to oh, say yeah. in that area. Yeah. So, yeah. and and the book you you have a book um the uh, the Stargate the uh, Stargate yes. conspiracy. Yeah, yeah. It's not that's not about what you think it might be about. Well, that has to do with Egypt in a way, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it does. It does. Yes. Yes. It, yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. Oh, there's a whole big story there. Oh, yeah. I story. would love to hear it. I want to hear it. I, I'm. That's probably going to be the next book I get. The yeah, audio book. Um, I. I oh boy. Okay. Thank you, both of you. And, yeah. Uh, and, uh, yeah. Thanks for all the people watching and sending in well, questions. Indeed, absolutely. Them. But Gretchen, it's been lovely to see you finally. At last. <laughs> I, I, I am honoured and uh, really happy to have a chance to talk to you both. And uh, uh, Lynn, white or red wine? Uh, oh, well, actually, strangely enough, neither. Um, gin. 
Oh, okay. Meet a, a, a woman after my own heart. Okay. I don't know. You know, but also, also, you? Us, us Americans are thinking, well, you're in the UK. You can't live that far apart, right? Well, that's not necessarily true, but we have no <laughs> idea. I've never been over there, so I don't know. But oh, you oh, should well. at some point. You'll I'm have to find to you around. Get to London. I can get to London. Yeah. Yes. I would love that. Yeah, Gretchen, Gretchen has already invited me to come over and she said she would tour me around to some of the places. Rossland Chapel. I had so many things I want to see. Yeah. I just yeah. have to see them for myself. And uh, win the lottery. Oh, yes, I know. And then our wonderful stonemason friend, Sean Williamson, that's uh, over there working mm -hmm. with this, uh, the Sinclair family. And oh, yeah. Sean is a, so gifted. He is truly yes. uh, extraordinary. Yeah, yep, he certainly is. Well, again, I'm just going to wrap it up. Thank you again so much for being here today. It's been my honor to have you on my show. Uh, and Gretchen, thank you so much for, for uh, filling in and coming on thank as the, the co-host um, or the host, my host, guest host. Oh, guest, guest host. Guest yes, host. guest host. Thank you so much again. Mm -hmm. Folks, thank you for being here today. And don't forget, we have the links for their website and also their Patreon channel. And as you heard um, Lynn mention that she also has the newsletter that she does, um, you got to check this out. Really, honestly, check it out. And it's so much great information. And as you heard them say, we're going to try to get them to come back on the show uh, not too long in the future, hopefully. And we will continue this wonderful discussion again thanks for everybody being here today if you hit that subscribe button i'd appreciate it very much and give us a thumbs up let us know how we are doing on our content y'all have a great rest of your day and we will see you next time right here on uh jfree 906 bye-bye now take care everyone bye-bye bye-bye bye bye bye, -bye. bye, -bye. bye, -bye. bye, -bye.